In today's episode, we're discussing something that, especially over the last few years, most of us are intimately familiar with. I'm talking about anxiety. Most of us feel nervous or anxious when we ask someone on a date, take a test, start a new job, or we start school, um, or when we hear the dreaded phrase, we need to talk. But what's the difference between feeling anxious and the clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder? And is this something that kids, adolescents, and young adults really struggle with? I'll be talking with Michelle Tubia, a licensed professional counselor and former school counselor, about how anxiety is different than stress or worry, and then some tools that we can use to regulate our nervous system. Thank you so much for being here, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here, and it's a great opportunity to share some really helpful, I hope, information. Absolutely. So let's start off with the the big elephant in the room. Can children (laughs) really have anxiety? Yes, definitely. Children can have anxiety. Anxiety can affect all ages. For sure. So we often say that like we have anxiety or we're feeling anxious when really it's that we're scared or we're stressed or we're worried about something. So what is the difference between anxiety, fear, stress, or worry? I think that's a really great question because a lot of the symptoms are, we see them um, individually, a lot of it overlaps. And so a lot of the words get interchanged. Um, I read an article recently and the description I thought was very helpful. It shared that worry happens in the mind, stress happens in the body, and anxiety happens in the mind and body. So worry is helpful because it can give us that motivation. For example, if I have a problem or a test, it's going to motivate me to prepare for that test. So in other words, it's helping me. But when worry gets to, you know, it doesn't stop, it keeps going, and I'm just ruminating on the worry, that becomes stressful. It could become overwhelming. Our body can get fatigued and just shut down with that. Um, However, that worry does help us. It does motivate us. So some of that's healthy. The, the stress that's effect, that we feel in our body, um, it's a natural response to a threat. However, and, and when we feel that in our body, we feel our heart racing. Sometimes we have a shortness of breath, sweaty palms. Um, sometimes we can't even think it's clear because we're just under this, this level of stress. So our body's responding to that. Um, The difference is that stress is typically a short-term situation that we're going through, and it's a natural response to that threat, where anxiety is a response to not necessarily, it could be a perceived threat, and it lingers. So that's a bit of a difference there. The fear that we, you know, are feeling is just this unpleasant emotion that's a strong emotion, typically, that's of the anticipation of danger. So our body naturally, our mind naturally goes to that. Um, and so it, it, it's keeping us safe, um, but being able to identify, okay, what is this fear? Where is it coming from? Is this truly, am I truly in danger or is this something anticipated? can be very helpful because then we can figure out what is going on with our body mm-hmm. and our mind mm-hmm. and our emotions. Yeah, absolutely. And for, for children, just to give examples, they might be afraid of the dark. There's something that, um, that might happen in the dark, or they have a fear of snakes. Or um, of. I remember for a long time, I was scared of bees, anything that, that flies, any sort of insect that flies, I was really afraid of that. And so, so typically, yes, it's something that there's a specific danger in our environment. Um, worry may be I'm worried I'm going to fail the test, right? I'm worried that I'm going to have to take 
this this um, grade over again, or I'm worried I won't get the job. Um, and after that event passes, right, we're not as concerned about that. And and that's very similar to to stress too. It's about a specific event, um, and once that event passes, then we don't have necessarily that that same response in us. Versus anxiety can be a little bit more long term. And anxiety can exist on a spectrum. So we all have anxiety at certain times in our lives, at certain specific events in our lives, but it can have the spectrum all the way to an anxiety disorder. So what is um, the difference between the anxiety that we feel every day and then the clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder? Well, we tip, you know, the anxieties that we feel every day, um, you know, again, it can be tied to the stressors that we have and, and that we're experiencing. Um, but the difference is, is if, if this, um, for example, if I'm having, I have, a, I have an individual that I've worked with that she had a, um, she was all of a sudden out of the blue, she just became very anxious about driving in the car. Mm-hmm. And her mom was taking her to school. And all of a sudden it became very difficult to get her daughter in the car. When she was in the car, she was very agitated, concerned, uh, fidgeting, shaking, shortness of breath. And the mom became very worried because how am I going to get my daughter to school? So when the anxiety gets to a point where it's interfering in one's life, it's like, wait, what is going on here? Why, wh- where's this Where's this coming from and how can we help? How can mm-hmm. we resolve this? So fortunately, the mom sought help and I was able to work with her and this, uh, she was a high school student, learned some strategies, implemented the strategies and became able to manage her emotions and get in the car and go anywhere and it was no longer a barrier. But when it becomes a, a barrier interference in our daily life, that's when we need to seek some further help. Absolutely. So it's it's preventing us from living the life that we want to live or from doing the things that we want to do. Um, if it prohibits us from from going out with our friends or um, going to school, sometimes the the phobia or the fear or the anxiety is so large that you know for for a somebody who has just a regular amount of anxiety, not an inordinate or or a large amount of anxiety to where it meets the clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, it may be, I'm scared of going to school because I don't know what's going to happen at school versus the extreme version of, um, I just am not going to go to school because I I can't push through that. And so it's preventing me from having the life that I want to live, from doing the things I want to do. And then you can also look at the decompensation that exists. If a child is doing relatively well or an adolescent is doing relatively well, and then all of a sudden you're starting to see that the projection is that they're decompensating and things are getting worse, that's a good time to get them and to see somebody, to talk to somebody, to to prohibit or um, prevent them from decompensating even further. Exactly, for sure. So what are some of the symptoms of anxiety? Um is it something that looks different in young children versus adolescents or even college-age young adult-type population? Does it look different, or is it the same in all ages? Well, let me answer the first part of the question, the symptoms. Some mm-hmm. of the symptoms are um, nervousness, worrying. Your ra- mind is racing constantly, having a hard time stopping that racing mind. Worst-case scenario, the what-ifs, the coulds, feeling um, a sense of dread or panic. Um, feeling restless, exhaustion, fatigue, um, a hypervigilance, those are typical symptoms of the anxiety. Um, 
you know, the stress symptoms are more, you know, in our body, our heart's racing, our palms are sweating, shortness of breath. A lot of times there's tension in the muscles. So there's, those are some of the differences between the stress and the, the anxiety symptoms that we experience. Across the spectrum, you know, across the ages, we, we see differences in how we experience those, um, those uh, symptoms of worry or anxiety because young children really are not developmentally at that point of being able to cognitively say, hey, I'm feeling anger. Mm -hmm. They're not able to verbalize that. Mm -hmm. So if they're not able to verbalize it, they're just responding with emotion, tears, outbursts, um, maybe through their screaming or mm -hmm. whatever that may be. But they're not able to say, I feel angry necessarily because they're just not at that Point developmentally. So we see that in young children. We see them with fear or anger or anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and they're out, they're having outbursts mm -hmm. in class or at home. So being aware of, you know, what is, where, where is, what is my child dealing with mm -hmm. right now? Um, and a lot of times just change. Children experience that with change. A lot of times it's just, a, you know, all of a sudden we have to go here. Well, then they, they don't understand that change. So a lot of times we can just preemptively tell our kids, hey, we are planning, this is our day. We are going to go here. It's a new place or new people to kind of help our kids understand there's some transitions here, especially mm -hmm. if we know our kids struggle with transition, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, some th there are some things we can do as parents. But I think understanding developmentally, it changes. In high school and college, it may be, um, you know, not going to class. I've had several colleague clients that say, hey, I just stayed in the bathroom for three periods. They just couldn't go to class. Mm -hmm. um, I have one client I worked with that she just wouldn't go to the cafeteria. She refused to have lunch there. So it just depends on the individual. College, same thing. A lot of times it's not going to the big classes, the big auditoriums with all those people. It may be just going to the ones with the one-on-one, -on -one, that that style helps them. But the big ones, forget it. So it just depends individually. But at the same time, we do see the differences across the spectrum for sure. Absolutely. And to just kind of set up where young children are is they are so dependent on their caregivers to be safe in the world. And so the word we use is they're egocentric. The whole world revolves around them, and that's developmentally appropriate. And so they're extremely and incredibly dependent on those around them to keep them safe. And so when there's any sort of change, like you're talking about transitions, it can kind of um, interrupt their predictability as to what's going to happen, what I, I'm what's going to happen today throughout the day and any sort of change can really increase their anxiety or, um, you know, ha have them decompensate. And I feel like, and I explain this a lot that I think we have to be detectives sometimes as adults when we're working with children and even adolescents, because children, like you were talking about, oftentimes they express what is going on internally um, through their behaviors or they have somatic symptoms. And then the way that I explain somatic symptoms is it's an emotional cause with a physical outcome. So it's that they're anxious because their friends are, um, you know, talking that something bad is going to happen at school. And so they're really anxious about that, but they can't verbalize that. So they say, I don't feel good. My stomach hurts, my back hurts. I don't want to go to school. And so you kind of have to be a detective as either school staff or a parent to figure out what's going that on, what's going on behind that. And you're looking at kind of what's driving the behavior rather than the behavior itself. 
And then that's the same with adolescents, right? Yep. Um, quite often they push you away. They want to be able to handle things on their own. They think they should be able to handle things on their own. And so you have to be a detective with them too because they hide their feelings really well. And so you're also looking at their behavior, but it might be a little bit different or they might explain it in a different way. They may say, um, I'm angry, but really what they're feeling is anxiety or um, school refusal may actually be school phobia or school fear. There's something going on, but you have to kind of be that detective. What are some of the most common anxiety disorders that we see in um, our young people, young children all the way up to like college, young adult ages? I think that's a great question. Separation anxiety is the most common diagnosis for children under age 12. And so we see that most commonly, you know, struggling to, to have those, understand those transitions really. Um, and be away from our primary caregiver. Um, in, in our adolescent age group, uh, National Institute of Health says that one out of three um, adolescents are um, experiencing an anxiety disorder. And then the age that really is the where it's most common is ages 30 to 44. So it's really, you know, our, our older, um, you know, are 30 to 44 that's experiencing and being diagnosed most commonly. However, it affects all ages for sure. Yeah, and I I wanted to clarify, the separation anxiety is very age appropriate in our younger kids. So up until about five, six or so, and this is not a rigid line, but up until then, that's normal for them to have some anxiety being separated from their parents. And I remember having this like incredibly strong fear. And I believe I was about six or seven that my mom was going to die when I was at school. And so I just would panic before going to school because I thought that was the last time I was going to see her. And that is relatively age appropriate, depending on, you know, what's going on with your child. Um, Some of the adolescents and young adults, they might have more specific things like obsessive compulsive disorder or generalized anxiety disorder, which is, you know, where there there isn't necessarily a specific cause for the anxiety. It's just they're kind of anxious about a lot of different things. And their anxiety tends to be more focused on um, how they're perceived, right? Adolescents, it's how they're perceived. It's mm-hmm. their performance. Mm-hmm. Whereas younger children, it's the external stuff. I'm, I'm anxious about something happening in my external world. Adolescents, it's my internal world. That's where we see the social phobias, right? The um, I don't, I can't go out with everybody because what if I don't look appropriate or what if, how are they going to see me? Um, I remember a, I had a really good friend that, and she was actually my my roommate and undergrad. She, if I would say, do you want Coke or Dr. Pepper? She wouldn't be able to answer me. She's like, whatever you want. She was so concerned about how she was perceived yeah. that she couldn't even make a decision. Um, and I think just talking about obsessive compulsive disorder for a minute, um, I know we've talked about this before. That's one thing that I hear in in common everyday situations that, oh, I have OCD because I like to have a clean house. Or speaking for myself personally, like I, we all have little quirks. And mine yes. is with the microwave. I want it to end on a five or a zero. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's not obsessive compulsive disorder. And so I think it's really important that we are careful with our language and we don't minimize what somebody else is going through because anxiety, if you've had it, it's very overwhelming and it does impact your life and it's something that's miserable. And so saying that because you like to have your house neat or you have little quirks that we all have, that that's the same as somebody else's experience that is really impacting their life. It kind of minimizes what they're going through. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's very important that we be um, aware of the of the 
the way we express ourselves, really, because it can minimize somebody else's experience. And if we haven't experienced it, we have no idea the extent of, of what that's like. So mm-hmm. I think it's important that we be aware of that for sure. We talked about this a little bit, but can anxiety look like it's something else? So could it look like behavior problems? Um, we know that kids will sometimes act out or um, it looks like there's an anger problem when really there might be another cause like anxiety. Mm-hmm. So is it something that can manifest as a behavior problem or an anger outburst or just, you know, be- behavioral dysregulation when it's really something else? I think for sure. I mean, I think in classrooms particularly, we have students that are experiencing all different situations, but a lot of times the teacher sees um, an angry outburst or they walk out the room or they're coming into the classroom in tears or there's something going on. And so, you know, being aware of what is going on with the with our, with our students and understanding, um, you know, these behaviors – it could be it could be something else. It could be anxiety. It could be fear. Um, it could be test anxiety. A lot of students suffer, you know, suffer from that. And so I think we can do a lot as educators to to be aware of what the symptoms are for anxiety, what our students are going through, and what we can do to help help them in that. Absolutely. So would we see these behavior outbursts? Some of the things that we might see in the classroom is something like, uh, I hate you, or why, why do you always pick on me? Or it looks like defiance. I'm just not going to do what you tell me to do. Um, and as a teacher, we understand that there's a lot going on in educators' lives right now. Um, they are under a lot of pressure. They have a lot of expectations. They, um, they're leaving the profession, and so there's less educators, and there's still the same amount of students in the classroom. And so there, there is a lot going on. Mm-hmm. But if we understand what's driving that behavior, and we can take that a little bit of extra time, which we'll talk about that in just a minute about some of the specific things that can be done, you're going to see a different child. You're going to have somebody who's more compliant because you're able to work with them to figure out what's going on and then the skill set to be able to work through that rather than having this uh, battle, this constant battle. Um, And for adolescents too, it may be the you know, the, the whole fight, flight, or freeze, it may be that they're fighting, but it also may be that they're flighting. They're just, they're just walking out yep. of the classroom. Exactly. And it looks like, you know, that they're angry, that they're behaviorally difficult. Um, and then what can happen as a result of that is they get written up, they go to the principal, um, we have the whole school to prison pipeline that can be involved with that sort of thing. And so just recognizing that there may be an underlying cause. And again, looking at what's driving the behavior rather than the behavior itself, um, I think is an important thing to talk about. I agree. It's really important. And it's something that is really treatable. Anxiety is very manageable. It's very treatable. It's something that, um, as a counselor, I'm sure that you see every day (laughs) people coming in with anxiety. So what are some of the ways that it's treated? Well, as, as you're correct, I do see a lot um, across the age uh, spectrum. And I think that um, for myself and, and many clinicians, one of the most effective ways of treating um, anxiety in counseling is with using cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's a typically a short-term uh, approach. I think it's very effective. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy teaches us that our thoughts cause our feelings. So if our our mind is racing and it's ruminating and it's all these negative thoughts about the what ifs and coulds, if we can look at those thoughts and break that down and find out what is going on here and change that thinking pattern, really rewiring our brain so that we can change how we feel. You know, it's it, it's work, but it, it can be very, um, very effective and very helpful 
to stop those tendencies and really um, make an impact on how we can manage that anxiety and learn how to self-regulate and, and, and kind of overcome the barriers that anxiety might present. And, get, and once we learn how to do those things with strategies and, and different techniques, we can be successful. I really believe that. I've seen that. Um, when therapy, at, at times there is a need to seek, um, you know, medical k- treatment because it's just interfering. There may be um, some sort of situation that's come on that uh, individual goes to their primary care and says, "I need some, I need some help here." And a lot of times there, um, we we hear of you know antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications that are prescribed. Um, and I, they can be very effective. Our, you know, our brain, our chemistry, it, sometimes it gets off balance. And so those medications help us to rebalance and to, to find a, an easier uh, place to, to manage whatever that situation is. I have a client right now, and she described it as, um, you know, the medication has helped her just to not cry every day. Mm-hmm. You know, she's able to manage her emotions uh, easier, if you will. And so I think there's... Um, there's a place for both. Um, I think they work really well together, having the therapy and the medication when you can do both, mm-hmm. because there's a lot in therapy that can help combine with the with the um, with the treatment of the medication. So I think it's very individual. A lot of times people say, "Well, I don't want to take medication forever." You know, I don't think that's the case. I think it's um, a lot of times it's just again getting rebalanced and learning some things to help. Um, self-regulate and be able to understand the anxiety and what it, what it is we can do individually to take care of ourselves. Yeah, I, I explain cognitive behavior therapy as ABC, antecedent behavior consequence. And I'm um, the way that I explain it to people to understand how we can change our thoughts and how that changes our emotion or our feeling towards something is the example of if you have road rage and somebody pulls in front of you and kind of cuts you off, immediately you might be thinking of, who does he think he is? He thinks he's more important than me. You know, I've got somewhere to be too, Or you can catch yourself that you're thinking that way. You can slow it down and you can say, he's going to the hospital because his wife is giving birth. Or he wants to go tell his mom goodbye because she's dying. And just changing the way we're thinking about a situation actually changes our behaviors, our our thoughts, and it can change the outcome, the consequences of that. Um, And I think your comment with medication is is really important. Um, And the example that I use for parents, if it's something that's necessary, is Medication takes the edge off, and I think counseling is something that treats it. So if you if you think about a a kid who has severe ADHD, and they're all you know all on the walls, and they're they're doing all these things, and you can't sit them down, and they won't talk, and they're just da 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 at all times. Trying to sit down with them and going, hey, I want to talk to you about how you can slow down and how you can think about things, and maybe this is how you can focus better, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you take the medication, it might take the edge off to where they can sit down for a few minutes and and work on these things in small chunks of time. And so it's not that it has to be either or, or or even that both are necessary. Sometimes it's just a medication thing, and sometimes it's a counseling thing, um, and sometimes it's both. But informed consent is important. Talking to your doctor about, you know, the, the pros and cons of things is, is also important, too. I agree. And I like what you said about not that it's not necessarily a lifelong thing. So when we're talking about any sort of mental health disorder or mental illness, it's, it's a snapshot in time in that moment, right? So working on these techniques and these tools, it may be something that 
you don't have to struggle with forever. And especially when we're talking about kids and adolescents, like you talked about with the brain development, it may be just that there's a little tweaking that needs to happen and it's they're going to be fine and never struggle with this the rest of their life. So I think that that's why it's also important that we catch things early and get people connected to help. So what are some of the tools or things or techniques that we can use to kind of teach our, our kids, whether that's our own children or our students, how to manage their anxiety? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, I think really educating our kids on how important our mental, emotional, um, our our physical health, our mental, emotional health is. You know, I think kids understand primarily our physical health. You know, we talk to them about getting enough sleep and exercise and, and of course, uh, eating and drinking enough water. That element, though, if, if, for example, kids are not getting enough sleep, it's going to affect the mental, emotional well-being of that individual. So understanding comprehensively the whole of an individual, if we can help kids to understand that through parenting, say, hey, you know, we want we want you to understand all of it. So your sleep, if you're staying up till 2 a.m., you may not feel the best physically and emotionally. Mm-hmm. So really ki- teaching kids how important sleep is. Sleep is one of the things I think I see across the board that individuals are not getting at all ages that really does affect our mood, mm-hmm. uh, our energy, our focus, um, our, our fuse. A lot of times people say, I'm just so irritable. I'm like, well, did you sleep? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's just so, it seems so simple, but it's not easy. I think mm-hmm. that's true with a lot of things in counseling. But even eating, a lot of times I'll speak to my, my clients, I'm like, oh, have you eaten? Well, no, I didn't eat all day, you know. And so the, our basic needs are super important in taking care of, again, comprehensively. But on the emotional side, teaching kids that, you know, there are tools that we can do, like deep breathing, mm-hmm. um, being more mindful, being able to slow our brain down and be able to say, what is going on here? Um, uh, being able to just teach them, hey, we can help regulate our emotions by taking some deep breaths. Nature, getting out in nature is another one. We take it for granted, but it's one of the best things we can do for our nervous system. So I think these tips, uh, if we can instill these in our children, they can see that they have some tools to take care of themselves. I talk about this bucket concept that, you know, we can we can fill our bucket with things that help us to cope in a healthy way, or we can do it in an unhealthy way. But when we do this in a healthy way, it helps us to feel stronger. Our coping skills that bring us joy bring us happiness. So mm-hmm. if we're using those coping skills, Ideally, we're building this emotional well-being. We're feeling stronger, and that helps us feel better all together, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and talking about the the things that we can do to manage our anxiety and the tools that we can use, we do minimize like the sleep and all of those types of things. With our young, I mean, for adults too, but mm-hmm. for young children and adolescents, um, I have a five-year-old nephew, and I'll ask him to do something. I'll ask him to. Oh, the other day he was he was eating a candy cane and he was walking and I said, please don't walk and eat the candy cane because if you trip that can that can hurt you. And he kept doing it and he kept doing it. And I said, do you need me to hold on to that candy cane for you so that you can follow directions? And he said, yes. And so I intervened and made that decision for him and that made it easier for him. So th- the way that you do that for younger kids and adolescents and young adults may be different, right? Um, as an adult, I may say, I need help with this. I need help. Um, putting away my phone so I'm not looking at it all night long yes. and then I don't get sleep. Exactly. It may be for adolescents. It may be as a parent. You have to be the bad guy and you have to say, look, I sleep is really important. Um, this is a new thing that we're going to do just to make sure we're all getting sleep. You need to hand me your phone at 8 o'clock so that way it doesn't interfere with your sleep because it's addicting. Correct. 
It and is. so there's other tools and things that might be need to might need to be implemented to help somebody do those basic things like the exercise and all the stuff that we minimize that we go, that doesn't really work. Yep. I'm fine. I don't really need to eat these things. I don't really need to do any of this. I'm good and I can move past it. But you're right. It's these basic things that are really helpful. Really helpful. It makes a big difference. And so I think it's important we can be aware of those things for sure. Absolutely. So what are some things that a school staff member can do, some practical things in a classroom if they notice that there's a child who's anxious or even acting out in anger, but maybe you suspect that there might be something else that's a cause? What are some specific things that a staff member can do? I think educators can definitely um, learn some basic mindfulness tools, grounding tools, deep breathing tools. Um, a lot of that might even be preemptively to teaching some um, test-taking strategies. But having kind of a go-to for your students, it's familiar. Mm-hmm. It's part of your procedures. We take, a, we take a mindful minute. We take some deep breaths because those tools are going to help any individual at any really any time to, to self-regulate. So making that familiar, mm-hmm. making that vocabulary familiar, and making it um, a go-to for students who may need that to self-regulate. But also having things in the classroom. I had a I had a quiet corner, which was between two file cabinets and just a curtain, that kids could go in there and just get quiet for a minute. Um, fidget cubes. Um, a lot of students like that to be able to do that while they're test-taking. Some students need music, um, mm-hmm. and I know that that's kind of... D- and you know, very kind of. Sometimes we can have it in the classroom. Sometimes we can't. But if that's going to help an individual in that moment, just to calm down, maybe we can find ways to 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 let that you know happen if it's going to ha- help that individual. So I think being mindful of what can we do in the classroom. Mm-hmm. There are some places and some things we can implement to just have again tools in our toolbox to offer our students. So then they have their own tools and helping them to self regulate and say, you know what, I'm just going to take some ten deep breaths, count, close my eyes. Get, get back to calm, if you will. But I think, I think the, edu- the educators can do a lot to help with that. Yeah. I, I One of the things I talk about mindfulness, well, and just in general, is our brain can't be in two places at once. Right. And so mindfulness is about focusing on something else. Uh, your brain can't focus on the anxiety. So you're focusing on maybe your five senses or if you want to talk about your, your feet. Yes, example. yes, yes. Um, you know, mindfulness, I just think it, overall, it's one of the best practices that we can all learn and practice. But one of the tools that helped me the most is looking at your feet. Uh, when we look at our feet, we get grounded in that moment mm-hmm. and we can remind ourselves, okay, let me take some deep breaths. I am in this space. I'm in this room. I am safe. I am okay. And maybe we use some positive self-talk. Um, if it's for a test, I'm going to do great on this test or I'm going to do great on this presentation. Um, and we can take those deep breaths and we can just kind of get some calm. So looking at our feet is a great grounding opportunity to just say, you know what, in this moment, in this space, I am here. And that's what mindfulness is. It's paying attention to the right here, right now, what is going on. And if my mind is right here, like you said, I'm not thinking about yesterday. I'm not thinking about tomorrow. I'm just here and now. And that helps our brain to calm. It helps our nervous system to self-regulate. And we can, we can kind of get that piece and, and move forward, if you will. Yeah, and the reason that we hear so much about breathing and deep breathing, and there's a lot of different breathing techniques um, 
but is it it stimulates our vagus system or vagus nerve, excuse yes. me, which is um, part of and it's the majority of our parasy- parasympathetic nervous system. And that is an automatic response. That's our heart rate and our blood pressure, our digestion. So when we do the deep breathing and we do our breathing techniques, it actually impacts those types of things. So when we have those anxiety and stress responses, when we deep breathe, it affects our parasympathetic nervous system and it can slow it down. Um, other things that can work with that are, um, if you guys have seen, there, it's really popular right now is the the ice baths yes. or sticking your head yes. in a bowl of ice water, your face in a mm-hmm. In ice water that also impacts it. Yep. And then another thing that's easy to do for most people, it's easy to do in all situations, is humming mm-hmm. or laughing, even if yeah. it's not genuine. That yeah. also stimulates it. Yeah. There's some great tools. Um, understanding our nervous system, if we could all understand that, I think the world would be a much calmer place. But, you know, understanding that we can self-regulate and we do have tools, the deep breathing. Um, One tool that um, I learned in a training recently that helps us with our nervous system is just opening up our, our perception. If I'm looking at you, but I'm kind of anxious and my fight or flight is in rare rare form and I am just about to do something, if I can open up my peripheral view, that helps me to calm my nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so there's little tools like this, um, uh, you know, relaxing our, um, in our deep breaths, taking a diaphragmic deep breath, that helps our nervous system. Uh, Tightening our nerve, our muscles in our, say if we have a tight neck from Mm -hmm. feeling that heightened fear, tightening and releasing that. So there's some little tools that help us, but if we can implement them, we can definitely help to regulate. And we want to be calm. We don't want to be in this. And the thing about the the nervous system getting activated, a lot of times it's just a perception. Mm -hmm. There's this perception of fear, what could happen. Well, if I'm constantly thinking about what the coulds are, I'm going to be heightened all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm always going to be in fight and flight. And that's chronic stress, really. Mm -hmm. But if we can identify that right here and now, is this happening? I'm not thinking about what's happening two minutes from now. But just right now, is anything happening? Am I safe? That, again, helps us to say, you know what? I'm calm right now. I'm good. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. And, and when we talk about anxiety, for somebody who has not experienced it, it can be one of those things where we want to say, well, just calm down. Mm-hmm. Don't be anxious. Right. Like the, the response is don't be anxious. Don't think about it. And it's not as simple as that. Um Oftentimes, I'll just say this really quickly, oftentimes anxiety and depression, there's a lot of overlapping overlapping symptoms, and it's hard to know uh, whether it's anxiety or depression because anything that you think is depression can also be anxiety. Yes. Eating, sleeping, changes, yep. um, change in friends, withdrawal, that can be anxiety or depression. And we often tell or think about somebody who has depression, well, just feel better, like just lighten up. There's so many good things that are going on in your life. Just feel better. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And we tell somebody who has anxiety, well, just stop being anxious. Don't think about it and you'll feel better. Exactly. how can we support somebody if we don't understand it? We don't have anyone in our lives that has um, a clinical diagnosis of anxiety disorder. How can we support somebody? I think, you know, asking the question, you know, if I have a, a friend who's going through something, asking, hey, how can I support you? What what would be helpful? You know, um, knowing that they may be going through transition, a loss, something's going on with them, and they've shared, hey, I'm feeling more anxious these days. 
ask him, hey, well, what is it? What can I do as your friend to support you? Would it be helpful to go out or would you rather stay in? Mm-hmm. Um, would you rather, you know, go listen to music or would you rather do something at home? Like, how can I help you in this? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can all be more educated and, and, and being able to support one another and what is going on? Because if we have an experience, we have no idea, really, to the extent of, of what that individual is going through. So being able to just be honest and have those conversations and not just try to stay away from it. Sometimes I think when we have when there's a topic that might be uncomfortable, we want to stay away. But as a friend, uh, you know, or even a colleague, hey, how can I support you? What can I do would be very helpful, I believe. Absolutely. And you think about neighbors or, or friends that have anxiety. It may be when you're asking them, it may be that their response is, well, could you give me notice before going out? I need to plan a long time in advance. Other people who have anxiety, it may be, don't tell me ahead of time. Give me about two hours notice because if I think about it, I won't go. So it just depends on that individual. And I think it's very respectful. I love that because it's very respectful to say you are an expert in you. And as counselors, that's what we believe. (laughs) We're not here to solve your problems. You're an expert in you. And so it's very respectful to say, how can I support you or how can I help you? What is what 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 needs to happen in order for you to feel more comfortable uh, to help work through that anxiety? And I think not minimizing what they're going through by saying these things, by saying, but you have it so good, you shouldn't be anxious. That minimizes what they're experiencing. Exactly. Exactly. If we're concerned about our child, uh, you know, after hearing us talk today, you're saying, I, I see some of this in my kid. What should I do? I think first and foremost, um, you know, seeking, um, you know, if you haven't had your, if your child has not been in the pediatrician or if you're, you know, adolescent or college student has not seen a, a doctor, I would say have a, a checkup first and just see how things are going and speaking to them about the symptoms you're seeing. They themselves may have a list of referrals or further resources for you. Um, if if they are recommending counseling, you can, um, there's a couple different avenues. One, you can go through your insurance company. Usually there's a list there. A lot of times employer, employers this day, these days have an EAP, an employee assistance program, that is free um, for a certain number of sessions. And that's a great way as well to, to seek some resources. Um, also, Psychology Today is a great online resource. There's Google. But um, there's definitely a lot of ways to, to, to find that, that counselor. A lot of times the first counselor may not be the, the right fit, but keep, keep searching and finding that one that, that you feel is the right fit. Because as a, as a clinician, we just want to help. Mm-hmm. You know, We want to help. So um, it's about just getting out there and, and asking the questions and finding out what, what it is, how, how we can help you. So I like that you said to start out with ruling out medical first. And I just want to elaborate on that for a minute because it could be, again, these symptoms of anxiety or or depression or whatever it is, it may be that there's a medical cause for that. And it it also can look like a mood disorder when it's something medical. It could be hypothyroidism, which is extremely common. Mm -hmm. And so some of the symptoms are, you know, irritability or lethargy, right? Being tired, sleeping all the time, eating too much or not enough, yes. not sleeping. Mm-hmm. All of these things are yes. symptoms of anxiety and depression, but it's a medical cause. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other things that could look like it's a mood disorder when it's not. And right. so it's good to be able to rule that out first and get some good lab work. It's not necessarily that you have to go through your pediatrician to get a referral. No. Uh, some people do, uh, but you can also do that on your own. 
I'd like to really quickly just give an overview of the different counseling options because I think that's confusing for people that aren't in the profession. And I'd like to start out with the difference between a school counselor and a um, an outside counselor, like a licensed professional counselor, because quite often I think that's very confusing and can be disheartening for a parent if they know that their child has seen the school counselor or is seeing the school counselor, they often think, oh, well, he's getting counseling. Correct. So could you talk about the difference between those two? Yes. Um, I I think that's a great question. Um, I saw that as a school counselor often. Uh, Parents like, well, you can just see my student, right? And I'm like, yes, I can see your student, but I can't see them as regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, Our training is very similar between the school counselor and the licensed professional counselor. However, in the school setting, a counselor is um, not only counseling. I mean, we are doing so many more things. We're preparing for tests. We're doing ARDS. We're doing all kinds of crisis interventions and um, guidance lessons. I mean, our our plate runneth over (laughs) in Mm -hmm. school counseling. I mean, there's never a dull moment. But um, in that, you know, a student may be seen by the school counselor once and then maybe two weeks later or three weeks later, because of all these other things that the school counselor has going on, there's not a necessarily, necessarily a consistency. Whereas if a, if a um, student is being seen outside of school, you know, I may see a student every single week. I may see them every two weeks, but there's consistency to that. We also in um, uh, in my practice and most clinicians, we have a, you know, procedures. We develop um, goals and treatment plans. We work towards something. There's a there's a structure. There's a roadmap to it, if you will, trying to meet that goal. Not that we don't do that in counseling, but we have 20 minutes in the school counseling is mm-hmm. what I was referring to. We have 20 minutes. And so a lot of it's triaging. Okay, mm-hmm. what is going on right now? What are you experiencing? What are the resources? A lot of times it may be, you know, they're going through a homeless situation mm-hmm. or transition of some sort. And so we can help get them those additional uh, resources. A lot of times, um, you know, there are certain campuses that don't have the school counselor. They have a social worker. But again, they're finding those students' resources, dealing with a lot of the same things. But it's very much in the moment, almost mm-hmm. reactionary. I think they try to be proactive, but with the time that's given, school counselors are just trying to help solve those problems, put out the fires. Right. And when we talk about school counselors, one of the things that's that's very difficult is there's such a wide variety of professions that are called school counselors. So nowadays, the training is very similar to a licensed professional counselor, but schools counselors, it's a certification, not a license versus, right. you know, licensed professional counselors, licensed clinical social workers. It's, that's all a license. Right. Um, additionally, School counselors, um, some that have been in the profession for a long time, are what was used to be referred to as a guidance counselor. They just did scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some school counselors that that's what they do. Yep. So what it looks like and what their job is can vary quite a bit um, as far as their experience and what they're able to do because some of the larger school districts, they they probably have some school counselors on staff, and some school counselors might even be LPCs right. or licensed social workers, licensed clinical social workers um, there on the campus. And some of the smaller districts may not be able to do that. And so there might be a school counselor who comes one day a week because he or she is at several campuses. Um, and then I just wanted to really quickly go over 
in the community, um, licensed professional counselors and licensed clinical social workers, very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, licensed psychologists typically do more of the testing. If there's an IQ testing or other tests that needs to be done, that's typically through the licensed psychologist, although they can do counseling as well. Mm-hmm. And then a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who has um, additional training, and they can prescribe medication. There is a shortage of mental health providers across the board, and even more so now after the pandemic, because there are more people now that are recognizing they have anxiety, they have depression, and they're seeking help. And there's, you know, counselors are very busy. So counselors in the community are very busy and overwhelmed uh, because of that. There, there's a lot of need and less availability. But that's not to discourage anyone. There's still a lot of people, and, and counselors are working nights and weekends, and there are me- more people coming into the profession every day to meet that need. But that is something that I hear about quite a bit is, you know, I, I want to see – my child needs to see a psychiatrist, but th- it's several months to get in to see them. Yes, I've heard, I hear that often. Yeah. So – what about if I'm concerned about a student? What can I do? Because I know there's a process and a procedure and policies that are in place, um, and we have to be careful as school staff and how we we talk to somebody, how we talk to a parent, what we recommend. So if I'm a staff member and I see a student that I'm concerned, maybe there's anxiety uh, that's that's a little bit larger than normal anxiety, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, what can a staff member do? Well, first and foremost, I would talk to the student and see if you can, you know, work with them and get them to open up a little bit about what is going on, you know. Um, and, you know, building those relationships is so important so that you can have that uh, rapport to say, hey, what is going on? Tell me, how can I help? And really finding out through what they're going through, the resources. The school counselors have a wealth of experience um and they do have resources Mm -hmm. so being able to say hey you know let me get you to that school counselor i know you don't know them maybe they've never met their school counselor Uh, maybe they're scared to go to the counseling office Mm -hmm. but being able to assist in that transition so that they can say hey you know you've got we've got help you're not alone here we've got people who are here to help you maybe it is a school social worker sometimes schools have both Mm -hmm. so um just being able to say hey what is going on here and if it's um you know if it's something that you can talk to the parents and say hey I'm I'm got I've got some concerns here you know their individually their well-being is the most important mm-hmm. and educating you know telling the student hey I'm very concerned about you I'd like to see how I can help and whether that be getting them to the school counselor social worker or speaking to the parents I mean um, at the end of the day their well-being is the most important and so as staff members I think we can try to identify what it is and how and and get them the resources they need I love that you said that, too, because I, I think we can feel so isolated when we're going through something. We don't reach out for help. We don't let people in. Um, and I think that the most important thing that we can do is to reach out and ask for help. And I used to teach young people, uh, specifically high school, but really all ages, I would talk to them about how you see on, on TV the commercials and it says, well, just um, essentially just ask for help. Just ask for help. It's very hard when you feel like you're the only person going through it or you're so depressed or so anxious. It's hard to ask for help. And so I would tell young people, and I think all of us can abide by this as well. If you're concerned about somebody, you know, get help for them. Reach out to them and get help for them. Bring help to them because sometimes it is very hard to ask for help. But for for everybody too, it's 
recognizing that you're not alone. There are lots of people going through exactly the same thing. And we think that we're so individual and nobody else has it exactly like us, but there are many other people out there and there's help. Yes. There's so much help that's out there. You just maybe aren't tapped into it. Yes. There's resources. There's people that can walk alongside you. And I think that that's the, the, the biggest takeaway is to recognize that you're not alone. We're not alone. We're all, um, we're all here together, and we can support each other through some of these um, these life moments that are happening to us and things that we may be struggling with. And for parents and staff members, that there is help available for you. Exactly. It's really important. Um, the problems that we're going through, we can work through those. You know, a lot of times, though, teenagers just see this at the end of the world. They can't see past what's going on just developmentally. Their brain's not finished developing. And so they just see this here and now and they can't see past it. And so recognizing that these problems, we can work through them. There are resources, there's people to help, they aren't alone. Mm -hmm. It is so important because as we know, there's a lot of, um, unfortunately, suicide is the number two leading cause of death for our adolescents. And so being able to educate them that, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. These problems we can work through. There are people who want to help. There, um, you know, there's counselors waiting to help and, and school counselors who are trained in helping and adults who are willing to say, hey, well, how can I help? Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that we help our students to know they're not alone and we yeah. want to help them. Absolutely. And I love that I love that you said that too. One of those things that we talk with, um, with our, our kids about is they do feel like that this is the end of the world for them. It's and not, in, not in a minimizing their experience way, but yeah. they think – because it is, right? This yes. is the worst breakup I've ever been through. Yes. Or everybody's laughing at me. I'm never going to get past this stigma of being the smelly kid or being the kid that's weird. Nobody else is going to look at me differently ever for the rest of my life. I'm permanently labeled as that. Mm-hmm. And so it is, of course, overwhelming. And if you think that that's going to be the rest of your life, it's understandable that somebody would feel like that. And so being able to work with them and seeing that, helping them to see that maybe I don't believe you. But I'm just going to trust you that it gets better, and I know you're going to be alongside me along the way. Exactly. I think it's really important, and I I recall one of my uh, staff members actually walked a student down to my office. She was so concerned and had somebody walk watch her class and said, you know what, I just want I want to be with this student through this, and sat in my office for a good amount of time, and just being able to build those relationships like that that you you know our staff can have with our with our um, students and saying you know there is a reliable. adult out there that I can turn to. I think that's so important. So again, building those relationships with our students is super important. So they know that I've got somebody who's my go-to. It's really helpful. I was thinking about, in addition to mindfulness and some of those uh, those tips and, and techniques that we can use, and we can do this as parents or staff members, mm-hmm. another thing that's really helpful is if we see somebody is kind of um, getting elevated or uh, escalating in their behavior or they're starting to to panic for lack of a better word mm-hmm. we can start slowing how we talk to them yes. we can start taking deeper breaths and we can start not telling them what to do but changing our own behavior and quite often they will mimic that behavior yes is there anything else that you can think of that that might be a good thing to help in that moment well, again, I think you're right. Slowing down, um, you know, being able to um, really empathize with what is going on. A lot of times they can't communicate it, you know, but we can we can see that they need to just 
get some calm. So it may be turning down the lights in your classroom. It may be offering them some water, um, offering them to get some water on their face from, you know, going to the, the restroom and just getting some water, getting calmed down and doing some breathing techniques with them, mm-hmm. you know, and just saying, hey, let's do this together, you know. Um, but being able to, to be there alongside them, I think, is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I've heard, I don't know if you've heard of this, but I had a psychologist tell me this, that what he what he does to help kids get out of the test anxiety mm-hmm. kind of loop is he says, I want you to start thinking about everything you know about whatever is they're interested in. Everything you know about the Alamo. Start thinking about everything yes. you know about the Alamo or every movie that is your favorite movie in, you know, one through a hundred. Start thinking about the listing for that. Mm -hmm. And when you get your brain thinking about something else, you kind of calm down, but then it also gets your brain working in a backwards way. Have you heard of that before? Um, I, not that specifically, Mm -hmm. but it reminds me of a technique that I use called where our focus goes, our energy flows. I love that. So if our focus is on something that's pleasant, that brings us joy, that's where our energy is going to go. And we're going to feel a sense of joy or motivation or flow, if you will, if I'm really enjoying, if I'm thinking about something I really enjoy. So recognizing, I, I use a triangle to, to illustrate it, but where our focus goes, our energy flows. So if my focus is on, you know, what I don't know and what, you know, this exa- the, the, the notes I didn't study or that chapter I didn't read, well, obviously our, our, our focus is that and that's where our energy is going. If we can flip that to, oh, you know what? Um, I really love this, this, you know, I love my um, it, violin and I play it all the time and I'm going to go play it when I get home and I feel so much joy when I do that. And maybe even listening to the music, you know, music mm-hmm. is super powerful. So if music can be a, a, a tool to shift that focus and get us positive and, and feeling that, you know, whether it be a higher beat or a different genre, whatever it is that can bring us to to feeling that, that positivity, you know, I think it's bringing that positive shift that can really help us to, again, shift shift the focus and feel that energy because it's really about energy. Mm -hmm. And as adults, we can do that too. I, I, you know, if I'm anxious about something, I think about what I'm going to do afterwards. So I like Target, right? (laughs) After this, I'm going to go to Target. And what am I going to do? I'm going to go down the holiday aisle and see, you know, see. So I heard this joke and it says, I don't have a list for what I'm going to buy at Target. Target tells me what I need to buy. And so start (laughs) thinking about, you know, what it is that that you're going to do afterward. And it can kind of help you focus on that and calm you down enough to get through whatever it is. It makes you nervous. Yeah. And I like that too because a lot of times it's like, well, this is not. This is going to take forever. Mm-hmm. How long is this going to take? And you know, if you think about something you're going to enjoy afterwards, it's it's very helpful. And I, a lot of times I use that with my with my uh, clients, and I used to use it with my students. Is we bookend. You can do something you enjoy around the things you don't necessarily want to be doing, and then you do something you enjoy. So a lot of times I don't want to sit and pay taxes, or I don't want to sit and do something that I have to do, but pay bills, pay bills. <laughs> but maybe I take you know a few minutes and I have a hot tea and I enjoy that, and then I do my task, and then afterwards I go to Target. Mm-hmm. You know, so finding ways to again um, get the things done we have to do, but encouraging ourselves by saying, you know what, I can do something afterwards. This is not going to be this test thing is not going to last forever. It's mm-hmm. only an hour. I'm done, and then I can go see my friends or have lunch or whatever that may be. I brought a candy bar that I can have afterwards. Exactly. Whatever that is, right? Well, thank you, Michelle. Is there anything that we haven't covered today that you'd like to talk about or that you think it's important to understand about anxiety? Um, I feel like you've asked so many great questions. Um, I think the – I think we've hit all the main points. Again, I would would, – 
tell parents and educators and everybody, get good sleep. (laughs) I really think it's one of the main things we can do and exercise. Those are two of the main things. I know we talk about it all the time. But when we realize how impactful those two things are to our physical, mental, emotional well-being, it's it's really Im- impressive that if we can do those things consistently, it can really have a huge impact on our overall well-being. And I think that's just another, I just had to throw that one back in there. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> and it may not be, for those who are more skeptical, it may not be that it cures anxiety, that you no longer have anxiety. But if you're feeling anxiety at an eight and you start sleeping better and you're now feeling it at a five or a six on a scale of one to ten, right. You're, you're going to be experiencing life in a different way. Exactly. So so doing those things really does make an impact. It may not take it away 100%. Correct. But it's going to make your quality of life a lot better. Exactly. And a lot of people say, I don't want exercise. I don't do it. I don't like it. Well, find something you can do. Maybe mm-hmm. it's walking around the block. Maybe it's just when you walk your dog, you walk five more minutes. But again, it's finding ways that you can accommodate. I call it finding the nooks and crannies, finding little space that you can do things to just take care of you and exercise is one and sleep. But again, these things are going to help help you to kind of regulate, if you will. It's not going to necessarily take it away, but we can regulate and feel better comprehensively, I believe, by doing these things. And, and exercise can be stretching too. It, it, exactly. It's just moving your body in yep. some way. It's not necessarily that you have to run or do yeah. these other things. Stretching your body actually releases endorphins yeah. and makes you feel better and can have a profound impact as well. Yeah, yeah it helps with release the, um, like you said, the endorphins and helps us to balance those stress hormones. And so whatever that movement is, you know, I have some people who dance. They mm-hmm. just come home and they put on some dance music. It could be stretching. It's just moving our body. It's just really, really healthy. So keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining me today in the Learning Lab studio. Um, thank you for sharing your expertise and your um, experience. And we really enjoyed hearing from you today. To the listeners, I hope you leave here with a deeper understanding of anxiety. Thank you for joining us in our mission to prepare today for a safer tomorrow. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. <laughs>